Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. We find ourselves this morning back in Acts chapter 6. Verse 5 introduced us to Stephen. Identified by Luke as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And as we make our way to verse 8, we see a shift in the text in Acts. And it shifts now to the persecution of Stephen. We will see him taken before the council. And then in chapter 7, verse 2, all the way down to verse 50, Stephen will review the history. Don't worry, we're not going to cover all that this morning. But Stephen will review the history of the Hebrew people, and his death is recorded in the closing verses of the chapter. And so what we have before us is about 70 verses, roughly 70 verses, dedicated to the life, ministry, persecution, and death of Stephen. Now this is going to take us several weeks to make our way through, but there are some rich studies here together in the Word of God that we will, Lord willing, embark on over the coming weeks. There is an old story that comes out of the Persian Empire, and that's what I love about it so much. This story is actually thousands and thousands of years old. It tells of a king who was looking for a faithful servant. And he had two men, but he didn't know which one he should choose. And so listen to what he did. He gave both men the same wage, same amount of pay. And he told them to fill a basket with water from a nearby well. And in the evening, he would come to inspect their work. But after jumping just one or two buckets of water into this basket, one of the men, he got completely frustrated by this. And he didn't see the point of simply dumping water into a basket. He thought this was useless because as soon as they poured the water in, the water just ran right out of the sides. Well, the other man, he didn't agree. He told him this. He said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We have the wages that the king is giving to us. And the purpose of all this is really the master's business, not ours. He's a wise, wise king and must have his own purpose that we simply don't understand. Well, the first man, he couldn't accept this for an answer. He kind of got all huffy about this and he threw down his bucket and he stormed off. He couldn't see himself doing what he considered to be useless work, work that didn't seem to have any point. But the faithful man, he continued to pour the water into the, bu- into the basket with his bucket. And eventually, the well was emptied. And looking down into the bottom of this well, he saw something shiny. He saw a little bit of a glimmer. He saw something right away that caught his attention. And once he got it up, he retrieved it, he discovered it was a diamond ring. 
Well, then it became clear to him the purpose. He knew why the king had him pour the water into the basket. The basket was simply intended to be a filter. And if the bucket would have brought up the ring before the well was dry, it would have filtered out into the basket. And so he understood that the king was looking for his diamond ring and his work, his efforts had a greater purpose. And the king understood something else. The king understood that he had found his faithful servant. This takes us directly to Stephen in Acts chapter 6. Because at the very heart of Acts 6, we learn that our loving King, the Lord Jesus Christ, He is looking for men and women who will act in obedience to His will. Choosing to serve no matter how menial, how pointless the task may seem to us at times. Knowing full well that our reward for our labor will not be seen until we go to be with Jesus Christ. And knowing full well that our King has a plan. He has a plan for the work He has sent us to do. The issue, the issue, it comes down to trusting Jesus Christ, not just for salvation. Not just for salvation, but trusting Christ with our very being, with our lives. And trusting Christ with the work that He has for us found in the example of a man by the name of Stephen. And Luke, he told us already that Stephen was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Stephen was a man that lived out his faith. He lived out his trust in Christ. He submitted himself continually to the Spirit of God. Now notice what we read in verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Here is a man that had a close, intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. His walk with Christ made him a polished tool, if you will, a polished tool before the Savior. Among all the men of religion in Jerusalem, this man, Stephen, he stood out. Stephen stood out amongst the thousands of Christians now at this point in the book of Acts that were gathered together in the city of Jerusalem. Why? Was it his haircut? Was it his clothes? Was it what he did for a job? We read of none of those things. What do we read of? We read of a man full of faith, a man with a close, intimate walk with Jesus Christ. Luke tells us this. Stephen was full of faith, meaning he had complete faith, trust in God. Back in verse 3, the apostles had said that the men who would serve needed to be men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. Stephen was chosen as one of these seven men because he was an example of what it looks like to live out your faith, to actually believe it, not just say it on Sunday mornings, but to believe it, to live it out in your life. This is how you make your life count. Walking with Christ, standing for Christ, standing for His Word, standing for the gospel of Jesus Christ in a postmodern world. And when the time comes, take the opportunities you are given as a believer to serve others. Believe it. Live out the Word. And opportunities, opportunities to make a difference in other people's lives, they will find you. Now, this is the second time. 
in such a short space that Luke records Stephen was a man full of faith. That's not an accident. That is not an accident. This is the pattern in the Word of God. Men full of faith that God used in a powerful, powerful way. Hebrews 11, and the hall of faith, that should come to mind, right? How many times do you see in Hebrews 11, full of faith, 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 faith. The power that Luke describes here in verse 8, it's not the power of Stephen. You don't read of him just exercising and getting all strong and mighty that way. It's not his own strength. It's the power of the Holy Spirit of God, which led Stephen to do great wonders and signs among the people. Now, the ministry and the miracles that Stephen was able to do was not because of his own strength, but the abilities that he had, they came from the power of God. Very few men, let's stop and put this into perspective. Very few men in the word of God exercised the abilities and the power of God like Stephen did here in Acts 6. Very few did. But let's also be honest about this. Very few men could be entrusted with this type of power because most men, they're just like us. They have the same problem we all do. They would let the power of God working through them turn them into men filled with pride. With pride. Seeking the attention and praise of men instead of seeking to glorify God. Stephen is the first man in the book of Acts, other than the apostles, that is described as working miracles. Now these signs and these wonders were initially given to authenticate the gospel message. And this seems to be exactly what Stephen had been doing, which led to this dispute among the Jews. But I don't want you to miss the dramatic shift that is taking place here in Acts chapter 6. Often, we have seen in the book of Acts that the the Jewish rulers, they despised the message of the apostles. That's a repeated theme throughout Acts. But what held the persecution in check was the continued favor of the Jewish people. But now, for the first time, we see the people, the people beginning to change. It was now the people that were resisting Stephen as he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here was a man, gifted by God, bold before men with a powerful witness for Christ. And yet, this was rejected. He did all the right things, and yet it was rejected. Notice... Our next few verses. Then there arose some of what is called the synagogue of the freedmen. Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist what? The wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Now the synagogue of the freedmen. This was the Jews from foreign countries who used to be slaves, but along the way they had gained their freedom. Former slaves and the offspring, the children of former slaves. And so they organized their own synagogue. These were the people who had started off as slaves, away from the homeland, if you will. But then they came back and because they wanted to be faithful to God. And so these people were nationalistic, very interested in the nation of Israel. They left their homes, their friends, and their family to move back to the holy city of Jerusalem. 
These Jews had lived in foreign lands. They'd done that already. But now they were back. And there was dedication to both the law and the temple. You have to remember that at this point in history, Jerusalem actually had a lot of different synagogues. One historical source actually tells us that before the Romans came along and destroyed Jerusalem, there was as many as 390 synagogues in the city. People with the same background. If you haven't noticed this, notice it now. People with the same background tend to huddle up and come together. Same thing here. Might be a little hard to make out on the map, but you can kind of get the idea of where they came from. In North Africa, down in the bottom right, we have both Cyrene and Alexandria. And then just across from Alexandria to the north, on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea, we have the regions of Cilicia and Asia. Now here's where it gets interesting. Cilicia was home to the city of Tarsus, which that should be familiar because that is where the Apostle Paul was from. Now Paul, he may have attended, very likely he may have attended this synagogue. And when he shows up in chapter 8, then we see that he consented to the death of Stephen. Connect the dots in your mind. The temple was where the nation came together as a people, as a nation, to worship, to offer sacrifices. But the synagogues, they provided the place for worship and study where the people were out. These people had challenged Stephen. They were offended by his message. Frustrated with the wisdom that Stephen showed and convicted before God, they would soon turn to violence. So follow this closely. Let's start it up again in our text in verse 11. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him up to the council. Now, in order to follow this storyline, if you will, you need to know that for the Sanhedrin, they, and this is going to become important over chapter 7 in the coming weeks, that they believed three main things preserved the Jewish faith. First, they correctly did believe, based on the Abrahamic covenant in, in Genesis 12, that God promised Abraham and his descendants a country a country, a land, a country to call their own. But they, as people do, took it too far, didn't they? They took it too far and thought that God could only work there. God could only work within the borders of that land. And second, they understood God had given Israel the law, the law through Moses. But they were kind of confused about their role as being guardians of the law. And third, they correctly believed that God dwelt in the temple of his people. But they took this to mean as something different. That the presence of God meant they would be blessed. That they would be protected as a people even if they disobeyed God. And so the understanding here is that Stephen is challenging these things. 
Stephen is challenging their very core beliefs. He challenged their understanding of the land, the law, and the temple. And he told them that they had rejected their own Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And so the people of this synagogue, they secretly framed Stephen, convincing men to give false testimonies against him. They couldn't resist the wisdom of God that was spoken through Stephen. And so what did they do? They plotted and they planned. They even gave these men the words to say. The jealousy and hatred in these lost religious men was so great that when they could not argue against the truth of the gospel of Christ, they relied on the only other thing that they could do. They lied. Isn't that what men do? When they have no other argument, they lie. The wording actually tells us that they found men who would lie under oath and speak what they had been instructed to say instead of telling the truth. Now this time the charge was that Stephen was speaking blasphemy against Moses and against God. Against Moses because Stephen, in preaching the gospel of Christ, must have challenged the permanence of of the Mosaic law telling these men that the Mosaic law it no longer needed to be kept and blasphemy against God because I have no doubt that he told them that even though the temple worship was no longer needed and the Levitical system was now over and so these people in this synagogue they understood this that this was a threat to their entire system that they had created to their entire religious system But it went further. It went much further because the economic life of the city and of the people that lived there depended very much so on the temple worship. So if you're going to threaten the temple, that's a threat to the jobs, to the economic stability of the entire region. The accusation against him, they were oh so clever because they carried a little bit of truth of what Stephen must have actually said, but they distorted the truth and brought up these charges which they knew would bring about the strongest reaction possible from the Jews. So the charges were serious. Listen to Leviticus 24. Remember what Leviticus 24 teaches us. And whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death, and the congregation shall certainly stone him. The stranger, as well as him who is born in the land, when he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be what? Put to death. These charges were pretty serious. But notice what they did in verse 12 in Acts. They created a mob. They stirred up the people. They spread these lies all over town about Stephen, the blasphemer. In Jerusalem, once the people were stirred up, it didn't take long before the elders who represented the Sadducees and the scribes who represented the Pharisees, these two groups would now take up the matter and bring Stephen before the Sanhedrin. So now he's really in trouble. He's before this council. And they would have no problem at this point getting the people on their side because they knew that if a man was said to be threatening the financial stability of the city by threatening the temple itself, the people would be upset. They'd riot. They'd be outraged. And then they'd want this man punished. It always comes back, doesn't it, to money? It comes back to jobs. 
So they arrest Stephen while he was ministering is the idea in verse 12. It literally reads that he was sitting there ministering to other people and they come and they grab him by force and they take him before the council. And then notice, they also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For why? For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Stephen was standing before this same council of men, the ones who had tried and convicted Jesus of crimes that he never committed. This was the same council that had arrested Peter and John. This is the same council of men that had just arrested the apostles and had them flogged for preaching in the very name of Jesus. The nation, they had rejected the Son of God, but now what were they doing? They were rejecting the ministry of the Spirit of God. And their tactics hadn't changed. Trumped up charges, false witnesses, and using a mob against them. Uh, Another lawless murder, if you will, in the name of religion, just as they had done with the Christ. The Jews had not learned. This is now before the council at this point in the text. The charges are brought forth. The holy place, the temple, the dwelling place of God. To speak against this temple was said to speak against God himself and Moses, the giver of the law, which they had received at Sinai. So to suggest that the Mosaic law no longer needed to be kept, it was to attack their entire way of life. It would be like saying to us today, you no longer need to read your Bible. You no no longer need to even partake in the body of Christ in church or prayer. That's how serious this was. Everything that had been handed down to them came through the Mosaic law. But this is the report now before the council by the men who lied about Stephen. And here's what they said. They said Stephen had been proclaiming Jesus would destroy the temple. Stephen had been proclaiming Jesus would change the customs and laws of Moses. Not exactly true, right? Not exactly true. But these were the accusations. Threatening words to be sure because the law of God and the temple of God, these were the very pillars of the Jewish faith. Now, this should not surprise us because they did this same thing to Jesus. Take a look at what they did to the Savior. Notice this in the Word of God in Mark 14. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. When men lie, their testimonies tend to not line up. They, they do not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? You see, this same council had made up its mind that they were going to put Jesus to death no matter what. They were going to kill him. But what do you do? I mean, what do you do when you have an innocent man? You lie. That's what you do. You lie. 
And they tried to say that Jesus was going to destroy the temple and that within three days he'd build another one made without hands. Now even their lies did not agree with one another. But what did Christ actually say? What did Christ actually say? Well, in John 2... The Lord had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. He had come to the temple grounds and overturned the tables of the money changers. And when the Jews asked for a sign, Jesus said this. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But he was what? Speaking of the temple of his body. You see, even his own disciples did not understand at first that Christ spoke of his resurrection. And you could see, you could see how dishonest men would take this and they'd twist it and take it as a threat to the temple itself. But then something else happened along the way in Mark 13 when one of the disciples said to him as they looked at the temple, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. They were gazing at this beautiful place. It was a beautiful building structure. This time, actually referring to the temple, Jesus said the following, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now the temple complex, certainly it was impressive. And Jesus was predicting that the day would come when it would be destroyed. And so the Jewish leaders, they kind of blended and they mixed these two teachings of Jesus Christ and they added in some lies, kind of like a recipe. Take a little bit of truth and mix it all together and add in some lies. And now in Acts, these false accusers, they were doing the same exact thing to Stephen. History repeats itself. Telling the leaders that Stephen was now saying that Jesus himself would come and destroy the temple. Now, in reality, Stephen wasn't advocating the destruction of the temple. But Stephen, I believe, was questioning the redundancy because Jesus died. Jesus rose again as the final and absolute sacrifice. I believe Stephen's argument was this. His argument was that the sacrifice at the temple, it could not bring salvation. Remember the teaching of Hebrews 10. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So Stephen is claiming here. He's claiming that Jesus is absolutely greater than the temple. And Jesus himself, he said the same exact thing. He said in Matthew 12, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. To proclaim the end, the end of the sacrificial system. This was a threatening message. Jews came from all over the world to offer sacrifices at the temple of God. So to undermine the temple, it was to threaten their way of life. It was to threaten all the money made from the temple worship. And the trial of Stephen looks much like the trial of Jesus. And the accusations made against Stephen in verse 14 are much the same as we saw. With Christ. And the reason for this is because who was really on trial in Acts chapter 6? Was it Stephen or was it Jesus of Nazareth? It was a continuation of the Jews' rejection of the living God. It was putting Jesus of Nazareth back on trial. Stephen, all he'd done, all he'd done was been faithful in his witness to the teaching of Jesus. So to reject the testimony of Stephen was ultimately. To reject Jesus himself. 
The violent rejection of Stephen that we're going to see in the coming weeks represented a rejection of Jesus, the Messiah. So all eyes now turn towards Stephen with our last verse, verse 15. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. I love this verse. It's quite fascinating. Seventy-one men. Remember the picture we showed a few weeks back of the Sanhedrin and how it looked? Seventy-one men, all of them, turned to Stephen to see how he would respond. They looked at him steadfastly. They looked at him intently and noticed this curious little phrase. They saw his face as the face of an angel. You see, I think what Luke was giving us is a picture of a man filled with the Spirit of God. Empowered by God for fearless testimony before the men that were accusing him. Luke was describing for us a man that was reflecting reflecting the very glory of God. A man that was reflecting the very presence of God in his life. Stephen had the appearance of one who stands in the presence of the Lord. You know, in Mark 15... Christ was on the cross. And look at the arrogance of man. Look at what they said to him back then. They said, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now here comes the leaders. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And even those who are crucified with him reviled him. It's the same, same type of arrogance. Same type of arrogance we see today. It's the same type of arrogance that we see in Acts chapter 6. A religious establishment of men who would stop at nothing to kill a man of God. Religious men that would lie. Men that had no integrity, no honor, no desire for the truth. But on the other hand, we also have a man here faithful to God. No one could counter the wisdom of God that he spoke. And the only thing that men could do to him was kill him. That's it. These were men filled with pride, men without the knowledge of Christ, men without the knowledge of God's word. But Stephen stood out because here was a man full of faith and controlled by the Spirit of God. Here's a good-looking guy. He's got more hair than me. That's William Nibs. He lived back in the 1800s, a Baptist missionary. And a very important date, not so much in this country, but it was in, in Jamaica on uh, 1838. The day was July 31st. He was a Baptist missionary there in Jamaica, and he gathered a large crowd of slaves for a great time of celebration and praise. It may not be the type of celebration and praise that we're used to. You see, they were celebrating the new Emancipation Proclamation Act that was, it would abolish slavery on this island. And what they did, it was kind of symbolic. They created a gigantic, well, oversized coffin, really. I mean, just this huge coffin. And they placed inside of this coffin all the whips and the branding irons and the chains and the clothes they were forced to wear as slaves. 
anything and everything that they had that represented slavery to symbolize the death of slavery, it was all piled up and put into this coffin. And at the very first strike of the midnight bell, William shouted out, the monster, referring to slavery, is dying. And at every stroke of the bell that followed, the cry was repeated over and over. And finally, the great crowd began to join in. And at the twelfth stroke, every voice cried out, The monster is dead. The monster is dead. Let us bury him. And then they screwed the coffin lid down. And they lowered it into a huge grave. And then they threw the dirt on and covered it up. That night, the hearts of these slaves, they rejoiced. They actually, Grayson, they wore out their voices. They wore out their throats. They shouted out and cried out with so much joy and celebration because they were once in bondage to slavery, but now they'd been set free. And yet, while that was happening, while so many rejoiced in their newfound liberty and their newfound freedom on one part of the island, there were slaves that lived in remote areas that did not know that they had been set free. And because of this, for many years after the uh, Emancipation Proclamation had been made a law, these men and women, they continued day after day, week after week, to continue to serve their old slave masters. Their slave owners kept the news from them as long as they could. By law, legally, they had been declared free. There was no reason that any of them had to live as slaves. But simple ignorance of the truth, it kept them in bondage. I think what we see in the book of Acts is this continual progression of men who knew, who knew at their very core that they had been set free. Stephen was one of these men. And as the believers continued to celebrate their victory, if you will, telling others about the freedom from the condemnation of sin, a great many of their Jewish brethren remained in bondage. And some of them, they would do anything to hold on to their power. Men of religion, man-made religion, they don't go away quietly into the night. And this is where the battle is. The lines were drawn 2,000 years ago, but the victory, it has, praise God, already been won. Our journey through Acts, it's introduced us to a number of characters in the Word of God. Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to the Holy Spirit and they paid the price. Peter and John, arrested and taken before the Sanhedrin. But Stephen, full of faith, the Bible says, so much so that he maintained his faith and allowed his faith to actually become a powerful weapon for God. A weapon that enabled this man to persevere into the most dangerous battle of his life. I believe without the fear of death. Stephen would become the first follower of Christ killed for his faith. Read, he was boldly going where no man had gone before. Put that in there just for you, brother. I don't think, and what I mean by that is I don't think he fully understood what was around the next corner. I don't think he knew what the hours before him would bring. 
But he simply put his faith in God and allowed that faith to guide him and motivate him. Stephen proclaimed Christ to those who wanted to hear it. And then he went and proclaimed Christ to those who didn't want to hear it. But by faith, he knew that even if he died that day, he was free in Christ and would be with the Savior. Find this sense of urgency. Find this sense of urgency in your own life for the gospel, for the precious gospel of Jesus Christ. Because by faith, Stephen knew that no matter the outcome, he would find contentment. Not your best life now, but contentment in serving the Savior. By faith, he knew that he would have a chance to dispute the lies and give the gospel of Christ at his own trial. And by faith, he knew that he would never, ever be alone through any of it. Because God would comfort him. God would strengthen him. And I dare to say, if we had this faith, we wouldn't fear death. We wouldn't fear sickness, poverty, or any other problem that can come our way. We find our strength in this childlike faith. Faith that actually looks at the Word of God and believes the promises of God. Stephen had the face of assurance because he was full of faith. When you're full of faith, you know your salvation. You know you've been rescued. You know you've been sealed by God and are secure in Christ. It's not arrogance, is it? It's not arrogance. You're just assured in Christ. You're not worried because you have trust. Men lied about Stephen. And the academics of his day, the academics, they all got together and they plotted against him. But yet he was full of confidence because he knew that he had an advocate. Where? The most important place with the Father. This is the story of the Christian faith. The story of a trail of blood, if you will. It begins with the cross of the Calvary, and it moves to Peter and the apostles, and it continues, even though we don't see it in our very comfortable life we live, it continues to this very day. And so we, as we close out this morning, this study from the Word of God, just let me encourage you to live for Christ. To fix your eyes on the glory of God. On the glory of Christ. Knowing that he is, as the kids learned in vacation Bible school, the author and finisher of our faith. Because a man or woman in Christ, following in the footsteps of the Savior by faith, this person, this person will be steadfast in their faith. Always pointing to the freedom found in the Savior. close out, I want to thank you for listening. And if you want to keep current with our studies, there's a lot of ways to make sure that you never miss another episode. You can subscribe by email. You can get our free app for your tablet or phone. You can also use the Apple podcast app or one of the Android apps and have all of the episodes delivered right to your mobile device. You can find all of the links on our webpage, return to the word.com underneath the podcast tab. And if you have a minute, Help us out by sharing this episode on Twitter or Facebook, because by telling others, you help us to tell the world of God's amazing grace. 
Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the